sitting across the microphone is perhaps uh, the most exciting actor of the year. This sounds like a cliche to say this, but after having seen the movie, by this time a good number of WFMT listeners have seen the movie The Defiant Ones. You may recall we interviewed the producer-director Stanley Kramer a few weeks ago. And I'm sure you're thinking, because it's hard to forget the performance of the actor Sidney Poitier, uh, one of the two men who escaped from the chain gang. As you think of Sidney Poitier, a number of you think of the movie that preceded this, that affected so many of us so profoundly, Edge of the City. Uh, can I call you Sidney? You better. Uh, we met, and I think we know each other. We have a feeling that we do know each other fairly well. Certainly. Well, Sid, the questions we'll ask, let's make this a free rambling sort of interview. Your feelings in being in a movie like The Defiant Ones, it's a challenge to you as an actor. I suppose you have to break this down first as an actor, and then as a Negro, we can't separate the two. And as a human being, uh, when you first came across this script that was handed to you, what was your feeling about the script itself? Well, I had uh, feelings in each of the areas you mentioned, you know. Uh, primarily, I had feelings, uh, emotional reactions as a Negro. Um, as, uh, as, as an actor, naturally, there were certain technical things that I <clears throat> look for. I looked into the structure of the material and found it to be much, 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 much better than average. I looked into the uh, elements that would, that I like to term the human elements, and I found it to be potentially an exciting script. Uh, some additional minor changes were necessary, I thought, and I conveyed these feelings to the producer, Stanley Kramer. Uh, but generally, I thought that uh, properly handled, it could be one of the most exciting pictures ever made. Well, it's turned out to be that, and I think no small part is due to the performances involved. Now, I'm thinking of something now. We, we touched upon this as you came into the studio. There was a movie that dealt with you up north, with the waterfront, a movie shot in New York. Again, the relationship of two men. Uh, two men. One happened to be white, one Negro. Just as in the Defiant Ones, one is white and one Negro. Uh, the difference... The relationship, I suppose, was due to the geographical differences, too. Now, in Edge of the City, you played this uh, a foreman of the waterfront, mm -hmm. and John Cassavetes played uh, the white guy, your friend, who worked with you. Right. Now, what did you find the big difference between these two films? Well, um, I think that, in essence, uh, each picture uh, uh, runs toward the same kind of conclusion. Uh, each picture is different only because of the difference in the milieu uh, and the difference in uh, certain social patterns. But uh, human beings, no matter where they are, north or south, they are three-dimensional. And uh, the relationship between the two men in The Defiant Ones and the relationship between the two guys in Edge of the City uh, uh, is the same kind of basic human relationship wherein man must depend on man, where they have, uh, where man must, whether he likes it or not, develop a give and take. And um, the, the old cliche about your brother's keep a bit, uh, I think it's not so much a cliche, you know. And each picture has something to say about this. It's funny, I, I imagine I'm trying to think which is a greater challenge to a member of the audience to listen to, whether it be a member living in the North or South. Which is a greater challenge, Edge of the City or the Defiant Ones? Uh, in Edge of the City, perhaps there is more, rather in Defiant Ones, more tension between the two because there is a 
a prejudice that is the lack of knowledge on the part of both guys. Mm -hmm. You both discover something about each other. Mm -hmm. Yes. You and yeah, Curtis. yeah, yeah. That, that's that, see, that's the wonderful thing about this movie, that um, and it's not a preachment, you know. It would happen if it was not a, a motion picture. It would happen if it was a hunk of life sliced out of any section of these United States. You find a black man and a white man who have nothing particular in common except that they are human beings. If you put if you put them in a circ in a set of circumstances that are uh, as lifelike as some we have here in our country, and they have to function for a mutual end, you'll find that each will, in time, unconsciously expose areas of himself to the other, that the other will grow to respect. You know, and uh, out of this mutual respect will come the the natural um, deterrent to deterrent, which is the way we pronounce it in the West Indies. Mm -hmm. And here you say, uh, uh, what do you call it? We say deterrent. Deterrent here, uh -huh. yeah. Uh, natural deterrent to um, to emotional outbursts and uh, uncontrolled uh, violent reactions well, to one another. Edge of the City, again, on the other hand, is a picture that says pretty much the same thing, but uh, this picture, Edge of the City, started where these two men began from the beginning to expose areas of themselves one to the other. And you watch this relationship grow until these men had developed a love for one another. And it's interesting to know that we, we, don't, usually, uh, we don't usually believe that a love can develop between two men, you know. We uh, we're squeamish people in this regard, you know. Unfortunately, unfortunately, just like a, the bigger the guy and the more strapping he is, it seems that the more he tries to hide his feelings, his honest feelings of of love for anything other than a woman, you know, or his children. I think this is one of the. Uh, uh sadness in a sense in an Anglo-Saxon society there are many good features but one is this inhibition this fear of expressing a very genuine and basic emotion we're afraid we're not being virile yes if we show emotion to a man of tenderness and warmth yes and of course uh -huh. this makes the uh, that of course makes the man all the more virile as it as you and Cassavetes both were on edge of the city and certainly as you and uh, Tony Curtis are on the defiant ones they're both you might say love stories they are indeed in you sense. know they are uh, they truly love stories. Um, they, they, uh, any guy who can grow to care for another man to the point that uh, he will devote even his life to, to the well-being and the peace and the growth of the other guy. It's love. It's, an, it's a self, selfless kind of love. You find this a great deal in the Orient, in the... In the in Oriental philosophy, you find that one of the most important parts of it, most important principles of Oriental philosophy is love, you know, unselfish love. And this is for all of God's creatures. And yet in a sense, if I may, I'm not uh, disagreeing with you, uh, the film is sort of enlightened selfishness, too. You both needed each other. There was this, to me, I was so taken with the concept of the link, the chain that bound both your wrists together, even after it was broken. And each of you could have gotten away. First, he could have with the girl in the car and left you in the swamp. Then you could have on the train. Right. And yet, even though the chain physically was broken, mm -hmm. you both found the need for each other. Yes, yes. But it's expressed uh, uh, in this movie uh, 
on the level of the acceptance of uh, the audience. In other words, it's it's uh, it's expressed as it would be expressed in life on the level of our uh, development socially to a point where we can express love of this kind. We don't say maudlingly, I dig you, I think mm -hmm. you're a nice guy, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm sorry if I've hurt you, and yaggedy yaggedy yak. But it's, uh, each guy simply says, you know, you're all right. You're a pretty okay guy, you know. We express it in our way. Um, and <clears throat> in, in the Orient, as I keep referring to, yeah. there they express it a, a little differently. It, it has a kind of a spiritual quality to it. Let's uh, come now to uh, the what makes Sydney not run, but what makes him tick. Run is a good word. Well, what makes you tick? You ran a great deal in the movie, but uh, obviously your guy doesn't run away from. You run too. I guess so. What about, uh, you mentioned the West Indies a while ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, I was reared in the Caribbean. My parents are West Indians, um, and I was born in Miami, Florida through accident. My mother was pregnant uh, during a visit to Florida in 1927, and uh, the, the authorities, the immigration authorities wouldn't let her travel when she was ready to go home because she was clo so close to giving birth and uh, she had to stay over till I was born. Then we went back to the Caribbean where I spent uh, the 15 years of my uh, my youth and uh, it's been home. It's still home kind of sentimentally in a certain quarter of my heart. I what about the West Indian? If I ask this for a moment, I'm going to ask about you, an actor, in a moment. But I thought of this. I've always wondered about this. Is the West Indian considered a man apart from other Negroes, by Negroes? This perhaps may be irrelevant here. I don't know. Uh, no, I don't think he's no. considered a man apart, but there is a, uh, an understanding that they are products of different cultures, you see. And, and each culture has produced a black man uh, with certain cultural char characteristics that are uh, distinct unto the particular areas uh, of their origin. The West Indian speaks differently from most American Negroes. And um, <clears throat> he, his education is uh, that which would be gathered from any British colonial possession. Um, <clears throat> his attitudes sometimes historically, his attitudes uh, socially, his attitudes um, on in in relation to contemporary politics and inter international politics, mm -hmm. local politics, would differ, I, I would imagine, from the Negro in America only because there are certain sets of rules. One guy is predominantly a, a, an English subject, and the other guy is an American. Mm -hmm. I imagine this might apply to different peoples of, oh, probably to the Eastern European Jew as against the Western Jew, the Northern Italian, Southern Italian. Very probably true. there are two different milieus. Yes. What about you, the actor? Why, what is, why did you want to become an actor? What is it about acting? Well, I think there is that about acting that, that affords me uh, a, an expression that I couldn't find anywhere else. I'm, I sometimes like to think of myself as not very, uh, I'm not, I'm a pretty emotionally uh, stirred up dude you know mm -hmm. and I need a great many releases I need a great many releases and, and as uh, western civilization becomes more mechanized I need additional outlets still and acting at the time when I was 17 18 years old acting uh, offered me an area where I could be an exhibitionist where I could give vent to some of my frustrations 
where I could be, where I could pour out uh, some of my confusion and uh, other uh, ills into a fictitious character. As well as your strengths, too. Yes. If well, I may interject. Such as they were. Such as they are. Thank you. And I... So I used the theater. I used acting and acting classes as a therapy. I would go there after working in the garment district or any other of the 14, 18 places I did work. I would go to class at night and I would uh, sit and study and uh, do scenes and read. And... I had, I felt, you know, that this is something that gives me a badge of distinction. I can be many things here. And the areas of life, socially and otherwise, that are, that were then uh, restricted to me, uh, I had ways of retaliating in this kind of illusion, you know, and... Uh, you it can be many things, you said, which leads, to, I think, to a, to an, a point here. Obviously, uh, but The Defiant Ones is an adult film. You've been in two remarkably adult films. Uh, the treatment here of the Negro, not as the old-fashioned stereotype, not the porter, not always the boot black or the, or the uh, cow tower, but as a, as a human being. And this leads to a question. Have you thought of the idea, I know this has occurred, uh, the late Canada Lee played Caliban in The Tempest. We hear the, we hear, we read of the tremendous... Negro actor of a century or more ago, Ira Aldridge, who played Shakespeare, yeah. has the thought of playing a role, a person who is not necessarily Negro, just an actor. He is neither Negro nor white, just a certain character. Has this thought occurred to you or come into your ken? Oh, of course it has. Um, I play now, I play Negro parts because this is the period in history when uh, I must play Negro parts. I think that in five, six, seven, eight, ten, twenty years, there will come a time when there will be more stress on merit and on creative uh, ability than on the um, than than is paid now. Now we give credence to casting according to type. You see, uh, we do this primarily, I think, because we don't have a standard, a real standard in the American theater. Had we a standard in the American theater, as for instance they have somewhat of a standard in, in England and other European uh, countries, uh, the actor, regardless of his origin, once he has developed to a point where he can, uh, um, <clears throat> where he can compete on a certain professional level, then his talent is employed, not his, not uh, what he represents socially or what, what he uh, looks like. Uh, or the place he may have in the society. His talent is employed, and if that talent is found in, um, in an Egyptian, or if it is found in, uh, in an American Indian, I see no reason why an American Indian cannot play Shakespeare if he happens to be a tremendous Shakespearean actor. You follow? Well, on that point, Ira Aldrich, the great Negro, I imagine it was a cent more than a century ago. Uh, was one of the great Shakespearean actors of zero, wasn't he? Yes, uh, he was one of the great Shakespe greatest Shakespearean actors that ever lived. He was one of the most um, decorated actors that ever lived. And he was, uh, he worked in New York with uh, Edmund Keane, not as an actor. Keane recognized his talent but was unable to do much about it. He worked around as a janitor and a porter in the Greenwich Village Shakespearean theaters. 
uh, not being able to get a job, and nor was he allowed to go anywhere uh, to any schools to study the craft of acting. He went to Europe and worked and studied Shakespeare in Europe and became, to this day, the greatest Negro actor that ever lived. And in Europe, he was not referred to as a Negro actor because his talent had superseded the social distinction, you see. What about, uh, is there a, this is, uh, this is in the future, are you, you've been talking about a biography of Ira Ulrich that is about, is about to be published, which you're interested. I imagine you'd like to tackle, it be a challenge to you. Yes, I'd like to buy it, if I can afford it, and I'd like to uh, fashion it, if it's, uh, if all things considered, the, ec the economics of it, if it's, uh, all right, I'd like to fashion it into a screen story. If this is, is uh, um, uh, not, possible I'd like to fashion it into a play but I think that it would make exciting theater the life of a man who became one of the world's greatest actors uh, who died in Europe by the way he never returned and who uh, you know he was only a few years removed from slavery and a, few, a few years removed from slavery that's yeah. right here again you have a the question of uh, a man's talent recognized despite the particular era in which he lived. Yes, indeed. You, know. you mentioned something, now we're in another era. You, you mentioned in passing a while ago, you'd like to find as many, you found acting a good means of expressing your, an outlet for your feelings in a growing mechanization of a Western culture. You want to touch that? It's a sore spot with me. <laughs> you mentioned something, about, what do you mean? You, you mean we're becoming the machine in a sense, the growth of... Uh, well, no. I mean that uh, the more mechanized the civilization becomes, the more complex life becomes for the uh, people in it. And um, we have reached a point now where the acceleration of gigantic changes in the social uh, behavior patterns brought on as a result by the introduction of additional machines and new types ways of doing th things mechanically has... Uh, brought us to a point of bewilderment, I think. We are bewildered by the constant change of things. We are on the threshold of a nuclear age, and we don't quite know what to do with it. We don't know how to treat it. Uh, some guys say ban it, some guys say destroy it, some guys say let's harness it, but there is no agreement, really. Um, uh, this is not the major problem. It, uh, the fact that they cannot agree only serves to show that possibly man has not developed himself to be able to control um, <coughs> the uh, the natural flow of of uh, science uh, as he was in the days when science was a baby. When you develop the gun the gunpowder, you could kill one guy at a time, and ten years later you could kill fourteen guys with a shot. And uh, it took them 30 or 40 years before they could come to a point where they could uh, kill 1,600 guys. But now they can knock off uh, 2 million guys at a shot. And when they do harness this power for good, uh, it means that it's going to open up all kinds of new vistas for man. But will man be ready emotionally? Has man been able to make the same kind of gigantic strides in studying man and his limits his uh, limitations, his capacities, and his adaptability more, more than anything else. You know, I don't know how we're going to adapt to traveling around in space. I don't know how we're going to adapt to, to uh, the 
uh, to all the wonder drugs that will be in existence 25 years from now. I don't know how we're going to adapt to uh, going to California in 45 minutes and uh, probably to the moon uh, over the weekend. I don't know if man has the, the wherewithal to make the kind of adjustment that would maintain for him his sanity, you know. But then again, that's probably one no. of my kooky kicks. Now, in a sense, this is connected with your job as an actor, too. You feel then, uh, when human life, to some extent, becomes so cheap, it's kind of rough uh, for an actor to express a human aspiration, too, in a way, and reach yeah. an audience. Yeah, and uh, well, with me, you see, um, <clears throat> I try to, to uh, develop in work a kind of schizophrenic uh, personality in that, I want to see man as he is and must be able to understand him as he is and uh, in order to be able to uh, recreate him with all of his complexities, you follow? Yeah. But at the same time I am also a human being and I am, I am like, I, am, I too am like the man that I am portraying. I don't know which way is out, you know, I don't have the answers, but I'm aware that answers are necessary quickly. But you as an actor, someone made a comment that you as an actor, at least in these two roles, Edge of the City and Defiant Ones, have been able to express the nobility of man. Not, you're a human being, not idealized. You're not a saint in either of them. You're a human being. But you were able to express the strengths of a guy under circumstances that are trying, that would try a guy. And this, to me, is a, is a, a compliment to your craft as an actor, plus your Intelligence is a human. Well, you're very kind. However, I think that that is a, a compliment that, though well-intended, does little for me in this regard. Uh, on a selfish level, I would probably revel in people saying such nice things about me. But then on another level, you find that uh, uh, you have to be concerned about mankind, I am, about humanity, to the point where you say that my contribution must never, or I, I would rather my contribution never be uh, thought of in terms of, of uh, my own selfish accomplishments, my own selfish achievements, my own selfish goals. I would like them thought of in terms of my contribution to the betterment of man. And yet, and yet, uh, you can't deny that uh, there is a selfishness. There has to be. There I mean, is. You are a human being. You see, well, you have tremendous kicks, the thrill. Yeah. Of repressing yourself. Yeah, you know you, but uh, it, it. Sometimes after the thrills and after the kicks, you go home and you you prepare for bed and you're alone and you think. And you think of the emptiness of the victories. You know. I think sometimes of the emptiness of, for instance. Uh, certain victories of certain nations uh, uh, over the last century. Uh, I think in terms of the hundreds of thousands of lives that were that were uh, just wasted in many scuffles like this, and nobody learned. Not I wouldn't say any, nobody, but nations didn't learn. Uh, they didn't stop it. They appalled it momentarily, and they propagandized to the point where they say it was necessary. 
and uh, but they keep uh, jabbing at each other and you know well, you know Sidney this may sound like imagination on my part perhaps it is and yet I, I have a, a doubt that it, it's a good hunch I think your thought as a human being is an asset to you as an actor. This is not always the case. I know sometimes there are unthinking guys who happen to be good craftsmen. They're good actors. We know that. There's a guy, let's say this guy's a jerk. And he can be a good actor. It's possible, a master of his craft. Mm -hmm. But I think the perform your performances are so multidimensional that somehow the audience senses there's a great deal of thought behind this and a tremendous amount of feeling that isn't at that moment simulated. It's there. This plus your technique, I think, accounts for the performances. Well, in the Defiant Ones, uh, I try to work on a certain level. I think I achieved some of the things I went after. And uh, as I told you before, my complex uh, mind, I, mind, the little I know, but whatever makes me complex naturally has to show up in my work for good or bad. I know I was going to ask you something. It, it shows up for good here very definitely. You are a West Indian, and yet you played a Southern Negro mm -hmm. in the Defiant Ones. Mm -hmm. Here now, what about this attack that you used? Uh, was there a research of a sort here on your part? Uh, yes, uh, there was a kind of a research. Um, I am, I am an American Negro. I'm an American Negro uh, now. Uh, ten years ago, eight years ago, I was a West Indian. I still, uh, the West Indian culture is still influenced my thought greatly. Today my thoughts are influenced, I would imagine, more uh, by the American scene, the American Negro community, than is by the West Indian. So it wasn't difficult for me to begin to work and know where to look for material when I did my research on, on uh, the kind of character I played in The Defiant Ones. And, uh, and I liked the man. I liked him. I liked the character, and I wanted to make him as full and as three-dimensional as I could in order that uh, other uh, people watching it would get his message, you know. He was a good human being, and uh, he was a good human being who was caught in um, unpleasant, in, in many sets of unpleasant circumstances, and he reacted as any normal human being would, but his goodness was always there, and it was never compromised. It was never. Uh, it was always there. I see this man. Uh, I think what what makes it uh, project right across the screen of the audience is it was a combination of many things. A man of fears too. Just of course, he was fears. a man of fears. That's right. You know, and in all my work, I'm very glad you mentioned that. There is a pocket of fear in everybody. Uh, the man who has escaped fear from man still has fear of something else. And uh, this fear, uh, fear is not destructive as long as uh, you recognize, if, if this fear makes you humble in the face of, uh, of things and uh, elements that are, that are infinitely more powerful than you, you know. But when you begin, when fear the fear of uh, of the piddling things grab a hold of a guy you know it can immobilize him that's the dangerous kind but if you fear God if you fear the unknown in terms of uh, the metaphysical if you fear <clears throat> if you fear your 
man's inability probably to grasp the meaning of things, the scheme of things. These are natural fears, and it helps him to to uh, to tame his his. Uh, Here again, it it uh, came through so vividly. A question, perhaps more technical. I think a lot of listeners would like to know this. You you're a man of the theater too, as well as a film. Oh yeah. And uh, there's oh, I, I suppose this is asked often. The difference. How is the actor affected? Uh, working in this uh, more mechanical medium, uh, the film as against the theater, is there, is there the same kick? Yeah, uh, there is the same satisfaction of a job well done anywhere you do it, be it on television, pictures, or on stage. But are on the stage, uh, the satisfaction is instantaneous, and uh, the competition is a different kind of competition. The competition on, in the theater uh, and your ability to compete rests primarily with you, the director, um, helps considerably in that he guides your talent. On a motion picture screen it differs somewhat because there are so many other um, <clears throat> contributions necessary to the whole. Uh, you have a cutter, a guy who uh, you can play a beautiful scene in many sections and it can be badly assembled and it would destroy the effect of the scene. You have uh, the technical el element which uh, must be uh, right uh, in terms of what the piece needs. You have the director, you have the other actors, you have music, you know. Many, many a guy has to make a contribution to a motion picture, be it good, bad, or indifferent. Many, many contributions are made. On the stage, uh, you get up there with the other actors, they build a set, and you go, you know. And uh, uh, go ahead. Did, that's about oh, it. Oh, do you mind? I was thinking, I think I should remind some of the WFMT listeners, those who may not have seen the Defiant Ones or Edge of the City, that you were in the movie, the Alan Payton novel, were you not? Yes, Cry, Cry Beloved, Beloved Country. Country. Uh -huh. I know that many listeners have seen that. Uh, they've heard uh, recordings of Payton and uh, the musical version of it, Lost in the Stars. Yeah. That was made where? Cry the Beloved Country was made in South Africa. It was made in South yeah. Africa. Yes. Uh, what about uh, filmmaking there, if we may just for the moment digress? In South Africa? Yeah, your experiences in this film, let's say. Is there On Gravel Country? Country? Yeah. Well, I had uh, 16 terribly uh, disturbing weeks in South Africa. Uh, South Africa is a, a not a pleasant place for uh, uh, the overwhelming majority of its citizens. <clears throat> and my being uh, a Negro, being a guy, a black man, I came in for pretty much the same kind of deal that the majority of the native Africans had to uh, withstand. But I had, to, but I worked 16 weeks there. I think that it didn't affect my work too much. It just ruined me socially for a couple of years. But again, I suppose all this, uh, every aspect of your life, uh, whether it be West Indies or America or South Africa, all this contributes to you, Sidney Poitier, uh, the artist. One more question before you wind up with, again, asking, not asking, just suggesting that viewers see Defiant Ones for their own good feeling, well feeling. Uh, the music involved, the blues, you sang a blues here. Uh, did you, you never sang, did you sing before? No, I never sang before. And yet you sang like a good blues singer. Well, I sang that well because uh, I, I didn't have to sing it, you see. There was a mood necessary, and this man, this man did not sing for others' enjoyment. He sang for his own ease, his own release, his own uh, 
uh, feeling of loneliness. He sang for himself, and to him it didn't matter, and it never will matter whether he's on key, off key, or what. It's what the words mean to him, you see. So the song uh, fits the movie because it fits the man's mood, the way it's sung. As a result, I must honestly say I more acted the song than sing it. You might say this movie is sort of a poem, in a sense, sort of a blues. It opens with your voice singing Long Gone as the credits superimpose and the movie mm -hmm. begins, and it closes with as the two men discover each other. Mm -hmm. And Sidney, perhaps I'm asking a bit, but can you recall that? Do you feel like right now, a cappella, just as you did then, you feel like, can you recall some of the words and just... To the song? Yeah. Uh. Long gone Ain't he lucky Long gone To Kentucky Long gone What I mean Long gone Sam on a bowling green, I mean bowling green, and so on and so on. And as you sing it, I can think of no better way to wind up this interview, unless you yourself feel like saying something, a sort of a coda here to this, just your own feelings about being an actor and being in this film, go right ahead, because I'm thinking of Long Gone. I'd like to say only that um, I have uh, been very lucky in the picture business. I've been working with a degree of uh, consistency. Compared to a lot of other actors, I never stopped. <laughs> However, uh, I would like to remind the public that if you like this picture, please tell your friends and your neighbors to go and see it. We would like all the support we can get for this kind of movie because um, we need, and I think that there is a huge audi audience in the United States, for the kind of picture that has a constructive humanitarian point of view in these trying, kooky, insane days the world is going through. Amen to that, uh, Sidney Poitier. You might just add that perhaps if a film like this is supported, and I'm sure WFN, this is not uh, a sermon or anything, just from the standpoint of entertainment, not that films can be better than ever, but films can be more adult than ever. It's an adult film that the audience need not be underestimated, the film audience. And with that in view, Defiant Ones is the film, and Sidney Poitier is the actor we have to thank for this. To me, a very moving and stimulating conversation. Thank you very much, Sidney Thank Poitier. you. Thank you ever so.